This is Super Investors in the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! This podcast is brought to you by The Felder Report. When I'm not interviewing one of the most interesting minds in the world of finance, I'm doing a ton of reading and research. I put together some of the best things I find each week into a free Saturday morning email. If you're interested in getting it, just go to thefelderreport.com, click join now right there on the homepage, and you'll be good to go. My guest for this episode is Joseph Wang. Joseph is one of the most knowledgeable people I've come across when it comes to the world of central banking and how it intersects with markets. His experience on the open markets desk at the New York Fed gives him unique insight into the inner workings of the financial system and how it has evolved in recent years. In this episode, we discuss the shift in both monetary and fiscal policy over the past decade and how it has crucial implications for investors in coming years. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Joseph Wang. Hey, I wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500? Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. Joseph Wang, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, you know, you're somebody who that I, I can't remember when I first ran across your work. Uh, but since I started reading, you know, your, your Twitter feed and your blog, it's really helpful for me in understanding a lot of the dynamics um, in terms of monetary policy, how the, the interplay between markets and monetary policy and, and those types of things. So I thought you know, this would just be a great chance to introduce you and your work to my audience. Um, in your bio on your website, it says you actually, in a previous life, practiced uh, law. What what sort of law did you practice, and how did you end up making the transition to the world of finance? Yeah, I used to be a lawyer. I, I don't like to mention that too much because you know <laughs> I want people to like me. <laughs> but so I I I when I was in college, I I wasn't super sure what I wanted to do. I just knew that I wanted something that was fancy and that made good money. You know, I, I think that's pretty common if you're a young man, and. To my 20-year-old mind, that, that was being a lawyer. That, that seemed really nice. You know, you get to be in a fancy office. You, you get to make good money. And, and so I, I went to law school at Columbia. And I, you know, afterwards, I, I went into practice, the practice of law at a law firm. And then I realized that, you know, you definitely do get a really nice office, great views. You definitely do, um, you know, get a good salary. But at the end of the day, uh, the problem is you actually have to practice law. Now, practicing law, in case you guys are not aware of, it, it's basically writing term papers for the rest of your life. So you're going to have to be spending, let's say, uh, 10 hours a day in the office, uh, just making sure you don't have any extra commas, just reading really, really, really boring stuff. And that's that's not really what I was, wanted to do with my life. I graduated um, in 2008, so that was right when Lehman went down. And what I realized then is that you know, all the stuff happening in global macro and finance is just so much more interesting than what I'm doing, chasing commas. So I wanted to work uh, in something that that had to do with uh, with macro. And I was really interested with, let's say, how, how stuff like quantitative easing worked, what drove market prices, and so forth. So eventually, I, I wanted to make that transition into something that was more markets oriented. Uh, but being in the aftermath of the great financial crises and being a lawyer, that just wasn't a really good time to make that transition. So 
in order to do that, I had to go back to school. So I went back and I got a degree in uh, financial economics. Afterwards, I worked uh, at a ratings agency as a credit analyst um, studying securitized products. And eventually, I made myself towards a more market-facing role as a trader on the Fed's trading desk. And that's where I began to learn a lot more about the financial system, about the Fed, and about what drives asset prices. And that's kind of what I, what I teach and what I read about right now. Yeah. Well, the open markets desk, how did, I guess, how did you find that job? How did, what drew you to, to that job specifically? So, you know, I, I actually, honestly, it wasn't really my, my first choice job. I wanted to be at, at a big bank, you know, that, that seemed to be where the excitement and the money is, but sitting at a rating agency, you know, you learn a lot, but, uh, the way this works is that you, you kind of want to be closer to the action. And if you are, if you work as, as a ratings analyst, you, you know, your clients are on the investment banks. And so you aspire to be either at an investment bank or on the buy side at an investment fund. Um, I was there when I was there, things were slowing down. I was looking for new opportunities. I feel like I, I had learned all there was to learn. So I applied everywhere. And at the end of the day, for whatever reason, uh, the people at the, at the New York fed, the trading desk there, uh, you know, gave me an offer. I think they were looking at some, looking for someone who was interested in the subject and who had good uh, quantitative skills. And so I spent a lot of my time building models and writing code and stuff like that. And they needed someone like that. So I, I, they gave me an offer and I went. And at first it was kind of surprising. So I was hired into the money markets desk of, of the New York Fed. So for those of you who don't know what money markets are, I didn't know what money markets were either. <laughs> yeah. So I just assumed that they were really, really boring things that that you would go and put your money if you were really risk adverse. Um, but it, there's actually a lot to it because at the very foundation, uh, studying money markets is studying the, the building blocks of plumbing of the financial system. And that's not something that people do a lot, but it's also something that I think adds tremendous value. So I found the whole situation to be uh, really exciting because I was able to really get into the nuts and bolts in a way that a few people are. Because if you're at the Fed on the trading desk there, you have access to tremendous amounts of confidential data and, and you also have access to a lot of relationships. So you're kind of like the uh, the eyes and ears of the FOMC. So you have relationships with basically all the major banks and all the major investment funds, foreign central banks, and so forth. So if you ever want to know something about the market, you call them up and you can have a candid conversation. And when you're there for a few years, you really, I think, build up a, a good a good view of um, just what's going on in the world and, and uh, how it all works. Yeah, and so, you know, the... You, you had kind of a, a front row seat to maybe most important, um, you know, station, you know, within the, the, the money markets. You know, I guess what is the how, how does the open markets desk work? What is its purpose? What is its main function? Yeah, great question. So the Fed, like any other financial organization or any other bank, I guess, has a trading desk. It's located in New York. That's called the Open Markets Desk. And its primary responsibilities are, are two. First, it's to implement monetary policy. So you hear about the Fed doing quantitative easing. You hear about the Fed doing FX swap lines with foreign central banks. You hear about the Fed uh, doing, let's say, borrowing the repo market or lending the repo market. 
that's all done by the open markets desk. So they they uh, they do the the, the um, trade on behalf of the Fed. Um, the second thing they do is to brief the FOMC about developments in financial markets. So let's say that something goes down in markets. Uh, you know, how does how do people sitting in Washington? know what happens how do they get their information well it's the desk's job to provide that for them so when you're on the open markets desk uh, every day we have two calls with washington to brief them on developments in in the markets Um, like i mentioned before the way that we go about figuring out what to brief them on is just through the big network of contacts the open markets desk has as well as a lot of the the data that the desk has. So it's kind of like a very large intelligence gathering apparatus. Actually, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure it's probably the best simply because you have such a wide amount of relationships and everyone understands that when the Fed calls, everything you tell them uh, is confidential. So they are um, more willing to to be candid with you. So uh, th- that's kind of the, the two main jobs that the desk does. Interesting. So, you know, I, I, the reason I, you know, I've wanted to talk to you about a, a lot of these things is I started out my career in, in finance uh, as kind of a diehard value investor, but I quickly, it didn't take me long to realize that macro and monetary policy play such a huge role in the markets uh, in this day and age that I have to start paying closer attention to a lot of these things, right? I, I went through, I was a head trader at a hedge fund through the, the dot-com mania and bust and uh, you know, then went through, you know, obviously the housing bubble and, and the great financial crisis. And you realize that a lot of these things are, uh, if necessarily driven, you know, by monetary policy as a, as a primary driver, it, it, it at least exacerbates the cycle in ways that you have to pay close attention to. So, I, you know, I, I'm curious to basically just understand uh, your thoughts, I guess, maybe help me understand um, from your perspective, the trends in monetary and fiscal policy over the last 15 years since the financial crisis. I guess let's, you know, look at uh, in, in the wake of the crisis, the Fed began uh, a new program of quantitative easing and specifically targeting asset prices. Can you, I guess, just help uh, people understand uh, what is quantitative easing uh, and how how it marks a kind of a departure from monetary policy that preceded it? Sure. And Jesse, I think you may make a really good point that it seems like over the past decade, at least, it, asset prices are mostly driven by these macro events. Um, I mean, if you if you go back to, let's say, the 80s or or something like that, value investing was very much in vogue, and it worked really well. You have all these papers, you'll say, by Fama French talking about it. But it, it seems like the markets, as they do, usually change over time. So over the past few years, that, that's been less effective. Now, over the past 10 years, I think the biggest drivers of asset prices have been official sector actions, like you mentioned, fiscal and monetary policy. And, and that really began, I think, uh, well, from, from my perspective, really began to be increasingly important since the great financial crisis with the onset of what you, what people commonly call quantitative easing. Now, quantitative easing, when it was rolled out, was terribly, terribly misunderstood. And But at the end of the day, it did work exactly as intended. So back then, interest rates were at zero, and the Fed wanted to to provide additional monetary accommodation to the economy to help it recover. 
Now, from the perspective of a central bank, their tools are interest rates. Now, the Fed primarily acted by raising or lowering the short-term interest rates. That's a problem when rates are already at zero. So if, if rates are already at zero, how are you going to provide additional accommodation to the economy? Well, you, you try to push down longer-term rates. Now, how do you push down longer-dated rates? Uh, you just go and buy a whole lot of treasuries, of course. After all, you know, if you go and buy a, a few trillion dollars worth of treasuries, the price of treasuries goes up, the yield goes down. And from a central bank's perspective, you're lowering interest rates and stimulating the economy. Now, I think the big misunderstanding back then was that, you know, just how does this actually work? Now, the Fed is printing a whole bunch of money, right? So obviously, tremendously inflationary. Uh, we got to go and buy gold, look at shadow stats, it's showing out of control, inflation and so forth. And that all turned out to be wrong uh, because they, they misunderstood some of the mechanics of the financial system. So the Fed printed a whole bunch of money, totally true, but then they used that money to go and buy treasury securities. So if you're thinking it from an investor perspective, let's say uh, I had... A million dollars worth of bonds. I sold them. Fed bought them with newly printed money. At the end of the day, I don't have a million dollars worth of bonds. I have a million dollars worth of deposits at a bank. So at at the end of the day, uh, I don't actually have more purchasing power. My wealth really isn't changed. Instead of having a million dollars worth of bonds, I have a million dollars worth of cash. And that's what the Fed did at a grand scale: just create cash, but use it to buy bonds, which are also, you know, money-like assets. And what what that did was exactly as what the Fed intended. It, it uh, you know, all things equal, pushed bond prices up and interest rates down. It did not lead to runaway inflation, but it was very successful in inflating asset prices, which, as Ben Bernanke noted, was, was the exact purpose of, of quantitative uh, easing, you know, keeping interest rates low, does many things, but among which include uh, raising financial the value of financial assets and creating a wealth effect. So the Fed can actually give people money directly, uh, but but it can influence asset prices like equities, like house prices higher, and that makes people feel wealthier and actually have more wealth that they can spend. Uh, for example, if you were holding a bunch of S and P five hundred stock uh, index back then, and quantitative easing push those asset prices higher, maybe you would take some of those gains and spend them on goods and services, and that could stimulate the economy. Um, Looking back, it's hard to say that it had a big impact on the real economy. So maybe that wealth effect was not super effective, but the actual portfolio rebalancing impact that inflated asset prices turned out to be really effective. And I think that's been a big part of the Fed's toolkit uh, since that era. So going forward, for example, let's say the past two years, when we had high inflation, one of the ways that the Fed would try to get inflation under control is to have a negative wealth effect whereby people would have, uh, I guess, less amounts, uh, the dollar signs in their brokerage accounts would become smaller, and maybe they would not go and, you know, buy as many Ferraris and uh, Rolexes as as they were, say, during the crypto boom. Right. So if if you're noticing that asset prices tend to be more driven by Fed policy, uh, I think it's because Fed policy is takes asset prices into account uh, more so since the financial crisis than than they did in the past.
Right. And and I would just add to what you you mentioned that you know when the Fed was buying treasuries and leaving the sellers of those treasuries with uh, you know cash in a in a bank account that was zero yielding cash and so they had a huge incentive to move that into something else that was you know hopefully generating return above zero so I created uh, you know as my friend John Husman points out kind of a, a hot potato effect where no, nobody wanted to be left with zero yielding um, securities and so it kind of created a, a demand for risk assets and people going out the risk. Um, part of what, you know, forced, I think, QE to go on even longer than probably Bernanke intended early on was the fact that fiscal policy was so meager at the time, um, right? We had the, the Tea Party and we really, fiscal really wasn't stepping up to kind of help the economic recovery in the wake of the crisis. And so the Fed potentially felt like they had to do more um, to help the economy than they otherwise would have. Fiscal policy has also changed dramatically in the last 10 or 15 years, right? It's changed tremendously. The fiscal policy we have today would be unrecognizable to people a generation ago. Uh, you know, in the 90s, we actually had a fiscal surplus. And at that time, the discussion was, gosh, guys, we have a fiscal surplus. Let's go and buy back some higher yielding treasury securities and save the taxpayers some money. Now, that, that seems so... I don't know, it seems so quaint today when what we're having is, based on official sector projections, uh, a government deficit of about you know 1.5 to $2 trillion every year, basically forever. So we've really changed as a country in our attitudes towards fiscal policy. A generation ago, people wanted to have a balanced budget. That was part of what they thought was a good thing to have. But today, though, I, I think nobody really cares about that. And that has a tremendous impact on both the real economy and financial assets. Now, going back to the example of quantitative easing, as you rightly note, uh, when, when someone has bank deposits rather than treasuries, well, you know, bank deposits yield zero and they also have credit risk. So what happens is that if you are an investor who can't take bank credit risk or who have some desire for some yield, you go and you move up the risk spectrum. Maybe you buy Apple bonds. Uh, maybe you buy agency mortgage-backed securities. Maybe you buy equities and so forth. Now, fiscal policy is altogether different in that it actually, when you deficit spend, it actually creates purchasing power. So... Going back to the example that we just, just discussed, if the U.S. Treasury, let's say, deficit spends by $1 billion, it's issuing $1 billion of uh, treasuries. It's creating that out of thin air. And if I were to give you a treasury security, you know, you would go from having, let's say, uh, $0 in your brokerage account to a million dollars in your brokerage account. So that, that actually adds to the overall purchasing power of the economy. So... One way you can think about this is that, um, so let's say that I have a million dollars in cash. I go out and I buy a newly issued treasuries. So from my perspective, of course, instead of having cash, I have treasuries. Okay, so my purchasing power is unchanged. But then treasury then takes that $1 million and spends it back into the economy. So someone somewhere has that $1 million I originally had. So at the end of the day, the amount of bank deposits in the banking system doesn't change, but you have an extra treasury security. So the overall stock of wealth, the overall purchasing power 
uh, over a set of financial assets actually increases with deficit spending. So in a sense, I think of it as money printing, um, much more so than I do of quantitative easing. So when you have a treasury that is basically deficit spending to the degree that it's doing right now, um, I think it's inflationary. And I think it's the primary reason why we have persistent inflation uh, today. It's because of the tremendous deficit spending we did in 2020 and 2021. And if you see the trajectory of what's happening, then um, you would then then you could easily make the view, have the view, which is what I have, that we're going to have a decade of uh, persistently high inflation. Well, I, I really appreciate this point that you're making because so many people did think that when quantitative easing was, was first initiated by the Fed, that it was going to create inflation. But obviously, that didn't happen. But potentially, what QE did was it enabled fiscal policy to be inflationary by keeping interest rates too low. It used to be that politicians were afraid of if we got you know too crazy with spending, the bond, bond vigilantes would kind of put us back in our place, right? And and, and interest rates would would uh, you know bond market would send a clear signal that you're spending too much. But that signal, you know, that channel uh, through the you know, Fed's intervention in the Treasury market has essentially been removed. And so potentially, um, do you think that you know, the, the growing quantitative easing programs over the last 10 years really encouraged uh, this, this uh, increasingly profligate fiscal trend that we're seeing? I think that makes sense. I mean, so obviously the Fed holds a, a few trillion dollars worth of treasuries. That keeps in, that keeps okay. It, it puts downward pressure on interest rates, right? So, um, if you're Congress and you have people complaining about your fiscal spending, you could easily just point to treasury yields and say, you know, I don't see a crisis. I'm sure that we can keep on spending. So, I think that's part of it. Um, but you know, I, I think it's. It, but I think if you take a step back, though, I don't actually think even if we did have higher interest rates, Congress would care. Either it doesn't seem like no, anyone ever mentions that um, you know I, I'm worried about the Congr- congressional um, budget deficits and, and so forth. So I think even if interest rates w- were higher because the Fed were buying less, I, I I don't I don't know if Congress would care. It doesn't just just doesn't seem like it's part of their their concerns right now. Uh, with respect to the bond vigilantes, I think that's. I think that that's a, that reflects a change in the participants in, in the financial markets. So going back to our value investment discussion just a while earlier, you know, I think a few decades ago, you can make the assumption that there is a large class of investors that, you know, they're looking at earnings per share, they're looking at revenue growth and so forth. They're trying to value a company based on these metrics. And so when the company doesn't perform as well, uh, they would punish them. But fast forward today, we have a lot of investors, let's say passive investment vehicles and so forth, who don't care as much about this. And and so because the underlying market participants have changed, that whole framework of looking at equity markets through a value investment framework is not as effective today as it was in the past. Now, using that same, okay, keeping that in mind, let's look at bonds as an asset class. Now, we want to think that uh, there are class of investors who are looking at bonds through the lens of, say, growth, inflation, and and, uh, stuff like that, and looking at the fiscal deficits of of a country. And so if the country spends too much money, 
um, the bond vigilantes would show up and they would punish that country uh, because there's a big class of investors who view the world in that framework. Now, that may have been true a, a few decades ago, but I, I'm not sure that's true today because when I look at who's participating in the treasury market, obviously we have the Fed who doesn't care about you know what Congress says. We have commercial banks who, well, um, they're kind of strongly encouraged by regulation to buy a lot of treasury securities, right? So they're not really looking at growth, inflation, or deficit. They're thinking about, well, these regulations say that I have to buy this, so, so I'll buy more of this. Or you can look at uh, another big buyer are foreign central banks. Now, foreign central banks, they have a whole bunch of dollars that they have to manage. They have a very strict mandate saying that they can only take uh, you know, sovereign credit risk. So regardless of their personal view of the sustainability of the federal fiscal deficit or growth and inflation and all that stuff, well, their mandate says, I have dollars. And if you have dollars, you buy treasuries. And so I do that. So. Right. The, the the underlying structure of the market, I, I don't think they're as sensitive to um to things like the the the, the um fiscal the fiscal behavior of of the U.S. So I think that that's another reason why that that we don't really we actually haven't seen a big bond vigilante revolt at the moment. That's a really good point. I think it was several years ago I read a good piece from GMO where they pointed out that one of these other trends that's gone along with this 15-year trend in monetary and fiscal policy is the trend in price-insensitive buying, um, whether it's passive investing or central banks. But you know, really, the, the Fed, you know, quantitative easing is is the primary form of price-insensitive buying that's out there, and it, and it potentially encourages uh, price insensitive buying on the part of passive investors in other in other areas because um, they're sending um, a signal that that it doesn't necessarily pay uh, pay to pay attention to to value and, and these things. But I want to come back to um, you mentioned that uh, the way you're thinking about uh, you know fiscal policy. Um, I, I think you said that uh, you see it as um, you know, Monetary policy in relation to fiscal is is uh, uh, monetization. Is, is that correct? I think of I think of it as changing the composition of of liquid assets in the okay. financial system. So fewer well, let, me, let me just or, yeah. I was going to ask you. Let, let me. I, there's a quote from from Ben Bernanke. I'm thinking about specifically. I think it was from actually February 2011. He was testifying in front of Congress, and he said he was asked by a congressman. Um, how is this not monetizing the debt? How is this, this is right in the wake, wake of QE2. He said, how is this not monetizing the debt? And Bernanke answered, quote, monetization would require a permanent increase in the monetary supply to pay the government bills through money creation. What we're doing here is a temporary measure, which will be reversed so that at the end of this process, the money supply will be normalized, the Fed's balance sheet will be normalized, and there will be no permanent increase either in money outstanding or in the Fed's balance sheet. Um, you know, that was more than a decade ago. And I think the Fed's balance sheet was at about two and a half trillion at the time. Um, obviously, it's a lot bigger than that today. And so I would, you know, I, I would just I look at that and I go by Bernanke's own definition, then this has been monetization of, of the debt. Would you agree? Uh, yeah, it definitely is monetization of the debt. I mean, so uh, like I believe it was Reagan who mentioned the closest thing to eternal life is a 
you know, government program, right? So the reverse repo facility was also thought of being um, of being temporary, but it's still here. So, you know, okay, it, it is monetization, but you know, like I like I mentioned earlier, uh, if you look at it from an investor perspective, you're, you're just kind of changing the composition of of uh, the liquid assets in the financial system. So that's where the impact on pricing and the impact on the real economy uh, could come from. But it, it, the Fed is, is kind of uh, full of contradictions here. For example, uh, we just recently had a debt ceiling episode, right? And, you know, one of the ways the debt ceiling could be resolved is that, that if the government just had a big overdraft in their account at the Fed. Um, so instead of issuing treasuries to fund their payments, they would just incur a large overdraft. But the government would never do that because it would violate the idea of the Fed lending directly to the government. Um, but as you mentioned, the Fed is already buying, you know, has already in the past bought trillions of treasury securities. So they're in, in effect already lending to the government. I think they would get around that little this uh, technicality by saying that the Fed doesn't buy treasuries directly from the government. Instead, it, it's buying them from the uh, private sector. So right. treasury issues debt, someone in the private sector buys that debt, and then Fed buys the treasury securities from that private investor. Now, come on, that that's not, you can't seriously say that. That's a big difference, right? right. Um, so I think it's just a, you know, a wink and a nod. Uh, yes, totally I totally agree with you. When the Fed is buying treasury debt, they are essentially funding the U.S. government. Um, but that doesn't necessarily uh, okay. Well, that that's separate from having the financial and macro impacts. But uh, on a legal sense, uh, I think that distinction between whether or not the the, the Fed is actually monetizing treasuries is, is silly. Uh, of course, they are. Yeah. Well, you you um, you know. Uh, there was an interesting interview with you, uh, Barron's, back in September, and I'm just going to quote you from this because I think it it, uh, it kind of points to you know your your confidence in the ability of the Fed to normalize the balance sheet at some point in the future. I'll quote: "We are locked in a world where there will always be QE because the Fed will have to ultimately become the buyer again. The growth in Treasury issuance is faster than the market can handle by itself." To me, I, you know that, that sounds like uh, you you see um, this the balance sheet as being um, just kind of on a trajectory that's that's not going to change. I mean, right now they're they're trying to uh, reduce the balance sheet, but uh, at some point they're going to have to reverse course. Is that is that correct? So that's my belief. So if you look at the you know, projected issuance of treasury securities, it's very obviously unsustainable. So today we have about 25 trillion, 24, 25 trillion of um, marketable treasuries outstanding. And it's, it's going to grow by one to two trillion dollars a year, every year, for, forever, based on current projections. I suspect those projections are underestimations because they're based on the law that's on the books today. And as we've seen over the past years, there's always new legislation that adds to, to, uh, that deficit. So, you know, you can't just keep issuing debt forever. At the end of the day, someone has to buy it at some price. Um, I suspect that you will eventually get to a point where uh, you could have 
some accidents happen in the treasury market, similar to what we saw uh, in the UK gilt market um, last year. So in the UK gilt market, we saw long-dated gilts basically spike higher simply because the market reached a point where there's a lot of selling and there just wasn't a lot of, of buying. Uh, in order for, for you to be able to continue to issue as much as you want, you have to have the, the underlying plumbing in, in place. Um, by plumbing, I, I mean, let's say, the underlying liquidity in the treasury market. Uh, just as a rough example, so today, on average, there's about $600 billion in cash treasuries traded. Um, 20 years ago, there was about $400 billion in cash treasuries traded on, on an average day. So we went from $400 billion a day to $600 billion a day. Okay. Uh, 20 years ago, we had about, let's say, $6, $7 trillion of treasuries outstanding. Fast forward to today, we're closer to 24, 25. So over the past 20 years, the amount of treasuries outstanding has grown by 3x, but the underlying liquidity of the market has only grown by 50%. So the the growth in issuance, uh, so the underlying market liquidity doesn't scale with the growth in issuance. And, and so as long as that's the case, eventually you could come to a point where you hit some kind of air pocket and you have these you know, suddenly the, the market goes without bid as it did back in the uh, the UK gilt market incident. So I think that's definitely some uh, significant risk, but also there's, there's a very easy way to solve it. And that is to have the Fed go in and have a big presence in the markets. Um, one way they could do this is to have some form of uh, soft yield control, yield curve control like they do in the, at the Bank of Japan. Uh, just hypothetically, I mean, let's say that I just keep issuing treasury securities, trillions and trillions and trillions. Uh, there's going to be a point where the price becomes so high, that is the yield becomes so, I mean, the price becomes so low, the yield becomes so high that that that's going to interfere with um, monetary policy and, and the functioning of the economy. So uh, should that ever arise, then you can have the Fed step in, either do targeted purchases like the Bank of England did or maybe just some kind of soft yield curve control where they say 10-year yields cannot exceed this amount of level. Um, I say this because, like I mentioned before, the, the issuance of, of treasuries is, is not on a sustainable trajectory. You know, it, that reminds me of a, of a quote. I think it was, um, you know, Bill Dudley actually wrote a piece for Bloomberg earlier this year, back in January. Um, former head of the New York Fed, he wrote, quote, while it's hard to know precisely when the persistent red ink will be viewed as big enough to matter, a fiscal crunch and bond market turbulence seem inevitable at some point, end quote. Um, you know, when the former head of the New York Fed says to <laughs> bond market turbulence seems inevitable, uh, I'm just, you know, I'm struck that, you know, I guess, why do you think the market seems so sanguine about this, this trajectory? I think there's two reasons. One of them is that, as I as we discussed earlier, just the underlying structure, the market participants, a lot of them are just not really, they're just participating because they have to, be it commercial banks or foreign central banks or the Fed and so forth. There's a lot of people who are basically inelastic buyers, so they don't care about uh, you know economic conditions or anything. And another perspective another point is that i think that a lot of the people today uh, they grew up in a world where 
you know, rates always go lower, inflation always trends lower, um, you know, government is going to get its act under control and so forth. And it's that confidence that, that they, that they, that, that inertia they've, they, they have from uh, just, a, I guess, a few years, a few, few decades, actually, of low inflation uh, that, that's shaping their perspective. Now, even today, uh, for example, as I understand, the real money investor community is positioned heavily towards, towards duration. So they're, they're buying bonds, probably anticipating some kind of recession or return to low inflation and so forth. Um, my sense is that these institutions, they, they tend to be heavily based, they build their viewpoints heavily towards um, their, their own experiences in the past. So, and, and for the most part, that works really well because the world doesn't change a lot very often. So thinking that the future looks like the past is usually a really good bet, uh, unless, of course, you're at a turning point where you could have potential regime changes. And then these more conservative ways of, of managing money become ineffective. I think that we're at one of these turning points. Uh, I guess expand on that that turning point uh, where, where you think um, monetary policies. You know, I, I guess just you know, expand on that a little bit. Yeah. So again, if you are someone who grew up over the past few decades, you saw rates come in, continue to go low. You saw low growth, low inflation. So you think that that's how the world is, and so what we and if you. If you have that kind of mean reverting view that you look at these past two years as just an aberration. And so, of course, you long bonds and you don't worry about any kind of disruption in the bond market. Um, but I think there are two things that are changing. Well, actually, three things that are changing that, in my view, signal a regime change such that uh, it's not mean reversion. It's it's a it's a trend change. So. The first thing, of course, is that, as that we've talked about earlier, that there's a fundamental change in the U.S. fiscal culture. So there's nobody thinking that balanced budget is good. We should just keep spending more and more money, and we will pay for it by issuing treasuries. A good example of this is what happened with the debt ceiling, where, uh, you know, it seems like the Republican Party, who's usually the, the party that cares about fiscal uh, deficits, they, they kind of just caved without any meaningful spending cuts. So, you know, everyone in Congress kind of runs on giving people free money. That could be ordinary people. Uh, let's say we give them more um, child tax care or stimmies or something like that, or it could be giving money to corporations, be it tax breaks or government contracts. So I, I don't think it's in any politician's interest to, to ever cut the deficit simply because how they win is by uh, promising to give their constituents more money. So that that's the cultural change. That means that we're going to have significant fiscal spending and, uh, in my view, higher inflation for the coming years. The second view is that there's a fundamental change in the supply side of the equation. So deficit spending, printing money to, to spend, printing treasuries to buy stuff, that's the demand side. The supply side matters as well. And the supply side, it's very clear that we're heading into a world where we have fewer working-aged adults. So over the past few hundred years, our working-age population has always grown. Since the 1980s, though, we've had smaller families. And when that happens, inevitably, uh, our population shrinks. 
Uh, we're getting to the point, not necessarily in the U.S., but more so in, let's say, Western Europe or in um, East Asia, where because of the low population growth, the working age population is shrinking. So, you know, if you have fewer people entering the workforce, obviously, you're going to have trouble producing the same amount of goods and services. The supply of goods and services, it, it looks like it's going to decline. Now, it's possible that we can make it up with technological advances in, in things like productivity. Uh, but actually, the productivity numbers over the past year have shown that productivity has been declining. And the last thing I think that has changed is also on the supply side. And that is that we are in a world that seems to be more geopolitically unstable. Uh, we, you know, the, the West is, is not happy with what's happening uh, in Eastern Europe. And it seems like the U.S. is not happy with, with China. And that's kind of a problem because, you know, the West imports a lot of stuff from China and from Eastern Europe. Now, if you have more political tensions there, you're going to import, you know, either uh, they're not going to sell as much to you or you're not going to want to import as much stuff from them. And that reduces the supply of goods and services as well. So you combine with demand from, uh, you know, fiscal spending with reduced supply from demographics and geopolitics, I think you get a regime change in uh, how growth and inflation will work in the coming years. Higher inflation, as I mentioned, but also slower growth. And I think that's okay, too. I mean, uh, obviously, we should, I mean, we all, always focus on growth on, on an aggregate scale, but we should also look at growth on a per capita basis. If we have slower growth because we have fewer people, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, if we don't have as many people, we don't really need as much stuff. Yeah, and, and I, I really appreciate you kind of laying that out the way you did. This is something that uh, might be the most important thing for investors to pay attention to right now is that this period of the last 15 years, you know, we're, we're seeing a sea change in these areas in fiscal policy and demographics and deglobalization. And people like Paul Singer and Stan Druckenmiller, uh, Ray Dalio and Bridgewater have warned that uh, you know this, we're we're entering a new era um, for the economy, for asset prices, these types of things. I, I guess I'm curious as to what it will be that will wake up these price insensitive buyers of assets to realizing that that strategy is not necessarily the best best way to to move forward. Totally agree. I, so I guess you know we had you you actually uh, wrote about the uh, the basis trade recently back in 2019. Actually, the last time the Fed really tried a, a prolonged quantitative tightening period through 2018, it ended in kind of the repo fiasco in 2019. That was kind of I think a, a wake up call as to the ability of the Fed to normalize the balance sheet. If you would, um, I guess explain kind of what happened uh, was the Fed's pivot on quantitative tightening back then. And if you think that's, you know, we're approaching a, a similar event um, uh, going forward. So back in, uh, so the Fed was the first central bank to ever engage in quantitative tightening. And they were doing it at a pretty conservative level. Back then, the, the maximum amount that they would, uh, quote unquote, quanti uh, I say shrink their balance sheet, so quantitative tightening, a month was about $50 billion. In contrast, today, the maximum amount they're theoretically willing to do is $95 billion. So they were doing it very conservatively, and everything seemed to go 
well. Uh, then in, in uh, September 2019, there was some excitement in the repo markets where repo rates spiked from, let's say, about 2% to as high as 9% intraday. Now, repo, for, for, you, for those of you who don't know, is a very sleepy but very important market. A repo, the repo market is basically where people borrow cash against U.S. Treasury securities, uh, usually on an overnight basis. This market is about a trillion dollars in, in size. Uh, actually, it's probably closer to 1.5 trillion today. So it's a really large and important market. Usually repo rates, uh, they don't really change too much on an intraday or day-to-day -day basis. Uh, you know, let's say a few basis points here and there. Now, in September though, they suddenly rocketed from about you know, like I mentioned, just about 2% to, to, to exploding higher. And that's really, really uncommon because such a large market is usually not supposed to have this kind of illiquidity, these huge price fluctuations. The Fed looked at that and the lesson that it took from the repo spike in September 2019 was that there were not enough reserves in the system. That is to say that they had run quantitative tightening too aggressively and the financial system was, did not have enough cash. Now, that was the lesson they took away from them. And because that was a lesson, they then uh, turned around and began adding reserves into the system by buying treasury bills. So September, October, from then on, they were uh, expanding their balance sheet, trying to add more liquidity back into the financial system. So this time around, when they're doing quantitative tightening, they're, they have to, they're trying to keep in mind that there is a certain minimum level of cash that the banking system needs in order to function. And if you drop below that level, you could have accidents like what happened with the repo market in 2019. So as they're shrinking their balance sheet now, they're trying to figure out just what is the lowest comfortable level of reserves in the financial system. And they don't know. So they try to figure out by, let's say, building models or just doing surveys of banks and asking them what they what they think. So going forward, that's going to be the constraint on how far the Fed could do quantitative tightening. Uh, the Fed has said very clearly that uh, they don't actually like having a big balance sheet. They prefer to conduct monetary policy by toggling the overnight interest rate. They feel like they understand that better. You know, having a multi-trillion dollar balance sheet, uh, they don't really know how that works. So they, they want to get out of that game. Um, at the moment, it, it looks like, uh, so today reserves are, you know, about $3 trillion. Now, a commonly cited Fed estimate uh, is to have, uh, let's say, the reserve amount of reserves the system, the banking system needs about 8% of uh, GDP. So, you know, that's like 2.2, 2.3 trillion dollars. So we are several hundred billion dollars above what, what the Fed thinks of as lowest comfortable level of reserves. So I think quantitative tightening based on that can, can go, you know, several months further. But there's also another perspective as well. And this is a perspective offered by Governor Waller. Now, Governor Waller says that when he's thinking about liquidity in the banking system, he's not just looking at the level of reserves, he's also looking at how much money is in the reverse repo facility, which is kind of like this huge excess wad of cash in the financial system. Um, that number is about $2 trillion right now. So 
it appears like there's a lot of cash, excess cash in the financial system. And from Governor Wallace's perspective, when he's thinking about quantitative tightening, he's not just looking about looking at bank reserves, but he wants to add reserve reverse repo balances to it as well. When you do that, you can actually end up with a QT end date uh, in a couple years. So there's a lot of runway there. So that's kind of how the Fed is thinking about this at the moment. Uh, right now, I think as we're recording, there's a lot of concern about, let's say, the TGA draining the uh, re bank reserves and, and so forth. Um, but I think the longer trajectory is that there's there's a lot of runway for this to go. Okay, I'm, I'm also curious, though, too, to understand, I guess, um, or to have your view on how, how did the uh, you know the basis trade into that. Um, that pivot on quantitative tightening into 2019. I guess if, if you wouldn't mind explaining what is the basis trade and how, you know, how it affects a lot of these, um, you know, demand for repo and things. Yeah. Yes. Oh, um, yeah. You mentioned that earlier. Uh, apologies. I forgot to uh, discuss that. So one of the interesting things in 2019 was that the marginal buyer of treasury securities was actually the hedge fund community. So I like to look at asset prices from a supply and demand perspective. And so who is the marginal buyer is really important in determining the price. Uh, back then, the hedge fund community was buying cash treasuries to the tune of several, actually over a trillion dollars. So they were really big, big buyers. They weren't buying because they were speculating on interest rates of cash treasuries themselves. They were buying as part of an arbitrage trade called the cash futures basis. And what that is, is that they're looking at uh, treasury futures and they're looking at cash treasuries and they, they're seeing that there's a disallocation between the price of the two assets. They're thinking that the price for cash future for their price for treasury futures is too high relative to the price of cash treasuries. So in order to arbitrage that difference, they go short treasury futures and they buy cash treasuries. And the way that they buy cash treasuries is that they buy it by financing it with a loan from the repo market. So they were doing this trade in, in huge size, and that was what was driving demand for repo back in 2019. Uh, the demand for that trade grew so much so that uh, they basically sucked up all the market, all the money available to, to lend in repo and um, contributed to, to the huge spike in uh, repo rates in 2019. So that... Um, that trade became very popular in 2019, all the way into March of 2020. In March of 2020, there was huge disallocations, uh, to put it mildly, in the financial markets. The treasury, the cash, the um, cash futures basis, it, it's a pretty safe trade if you could hold it to conclusion, because if you can keep holding that trade, eventually the price between futures and cash treasuries converges and you make money. However, before that happens, the basis can also widen significantly. And since you're doing this with tremendous amounts of leverage, if you can't hold, if you don't have enough margin to hold the position, uh, you could get wiped out, and which is what happened to a lot of people in, in March of 2020. And so that trade basically went away. Uh, however, it's come back in size, uh, starting uh, late last year. Starting late last year, it seems like the real money community 
became more bullish on treasuries, and they were expressing that view by buying a lot of treasury futures. As they purchased more treasury futures, uh, the price of treasury futures widened relative to cash treasuries, creating a basis, and the hedge fund community stepped in again uh, to close that. Uh, they've been doing that uh, in s- tremendous size. And so again, uh, you kind of have a return to 2019 where the hedge fund community, because they're doing this cash futures basis trade, is again uh, long cash treasuries to probably over a trillion dollars and um, the marginal buyer of treasury securities once again. And it's also why you see repo volumes uh, are at literally multi-year highs. Yeah. Well, it, it just seems like, you know, the, this is another example, I guess, of those price insensitive buyers, right? They're sensitive to the arbitrage, but they're not sensitive to the the nominal yield or anything of, of bonds. They're just leveraging it. But it seems like, you know, the last time the Fed tried, you know, QT in 2018, it created this large leveraged basis trade in in treasuries that ended up becoming a problem. And now they're you know, trying quantitative tightening again. And we have this huge, you know, this, this basis trade is a lot of time leveraged up you know, 50 to one. So you're right. If you can hold on to it uh, to conclusion, you can, you can make the, the spread. Um, but it also does have, uh, you know, like any arbitrage, right? You have a potential for small, high percentage, you know, potential for, for small profits and a very low percentage for uh, significant losses. Um I guess, uh, you know, what, what is it? Pick, Go ahead. You're picking up pennies in front of the steamroller. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, well, I guess to me, the, the most important point in all of this is that hedge funds, you know, when the, the Fed steps away from the treasury market, hedge funds become this marginal buyer of treasuries in a very big and leveraged way. Um, I, I guess to me that that also creates the potential for uh, for turbulence in the treasury market that, that you know Dudley and, and you were referring to. So I actually think that so I think the treasury volatility would be a lot worse if you if you didn't have hedge funds buying uh, let's say a trillion dollars worth of cash treasuries right then then you sure. would have to you know so so at the moment. I think it's playing a stabilizing role in the cash treasury market. But there is definitely the risk, as you rightly note, that let's say we have some kind of blow up as we did in March 2020. Then what happens? Well, back then, you know, once those guys get wiped out, they have to sell all the cash treasuries that they, they're holding, right? So if you have, suddenly have a few hundred billion dollars of treasuries being sold on the market, uh, that's really bad for, for the cash market's liquidity. Um, so that that there's that possibility as well, but that's a tail risk. I think so far it, it seems like the market ha, ha, is is pretty stable. Um, so I think if there is a risk going forward, it, it would be this in my view. So if you are a, a hedge fund putting on a repo trade, um, you have to borrow repo from a dealer, a tr- securities dealer. Now securities dealers are, are highly regulated entities. So there's a limit to how big their balance sheet can be. So that is to say uh, how much they can lend and how much they can borrow relative to the capital that they have. Now, let's say, just for the sake of argument, that you know this cash futures basis trade is great and they are the marginal buyers of treasuries and it just grows and grows and grows. You will eventually reach a point where um, a hedge fund wants to continue to put on the trade, but they can't get any repo financing 
because the dealers are, are maxed out. They, they don't have any more balance sheet intermediation capacity. Okay, if that's the case, then, well, who's going to be the next buyer of cash treasuries? And, you know, I, I don't know. But I do know, though, that treasury issuance is very large and continuing. So um, I think that that's the point where you can have to look for a next marginal buyer where you could have discontinuities in price. Yeah, well, it, it would seem obvious to me that the Fed, you know, the Fed stepped in in 2019 to, to make up the difference when there were problems in repo that, uh, you know, as, as you mentioned in that quote that I I mentioned earlier that uh, it seems inevitable that the Fed is going to have to implement some type of yield curve control or something to 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 uh, just because the the trajectory of Treasury in- issuance is, is uh, to the point where that the market potentially won't be able to function without it. Um, in that light, uh, I guess if you believe that we're in a kind of a new era of higher inflation, prof- uh, uh, I guess, uh, inflation trends just driven by these kind of secular forces, uh, what kind of problem does it pose that the, the Fed uh, will not be able to normalize the balance sheet um, in a way that would potentially counteract those inflationary forces? So that 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 is a you know I I would say though that if we have significant inflationary forces the Fed should actually be shrinking their balance sheet faster than they currently are mm-hmm. uh, because one way that you can get inflation under control in theory is to raise longer dated interest rates so we've hiked the Fed funds rate to five percent which is you know the Fed's primary tool, but, you know, the, the 10 year yield still below 4%. Um, you know, one way you can get the Fed, the 10 year yield higher is if you just speed up quantitative tightening. So uh, I think, in, I think if there is a persistently high inflation in the country, the, it actually argues for a more aggressive quantitative tightening. That is a smaller Fed balance sheet until of course, there's some degree of, uh, financial stability, then there's a really difficult question. And I think this is what you're getting at. So how do you shrink your balance sheet, but also uh, maintain financial stability? I think that's that's when yield curve control could come in. Uh, I, I do think that just just looking at the big problem from, from a, a bird's eye perspective, that does seem to be the inevitable way that monetary policy will be conducted from my perspective. And we already see the Bank of Japan, which is, you know, kind of avant-garde. They're first to do big QE, one of the first to do negative interest rates, and now, uh, and of course, yield curve control. And, and so maybe maybe that's how the world will end up. Um, if you think we're headed down that path, and we, uh, we have seen a sea change in these things, um, you know, uh, what do you think that means for for investors? How do you think investors will have to adapt or change in the years ahead uh, from the behavior that they've um, engaged in for the last 10 years? I think the big change will be that bonds are, are no longer going to be, uh, I think, the, the safe asset that has a negative correlation to, to equities. I think what happened in, last year when bonds and stocks were positively correlated is a glimpse of of the broader trend going forward. So, I mean, 
just think about it this way. Let's say that you're, you're, you're buying a stock and the CEO goes out and tells you, I'm glad you like my stock. I'm going to issue a ton more of that stock this year. And I'm going to issue more of that stock next year. And the more, yeah, no, what, right. what are you going to do, right? Does that make yeah. you, does that make it a good buy? You're like, right. oh no, I got to get out of here. <laughs> so that's exactly what the U.S. Treasury is doing. Uh, it, it just blows my mind to think that there are still people who, who are just, you know, that 10-year yield is below 4%. So if that's... at so if you realize that, you know, maybe this uh, the trend for yields is higher, I think the logical step is you move your money into something like actually equities, uh, because at the very least, you know, if we have an inflationary world, uh, the and equities benefit from that in that through the revenue channel. So if you're a company and we are in, in inflationary times, you know, maybe your your top line will go up a bit more. Um, if, if you've got countries that have very high inflation, uh, I don't like to point at Argentina, but just as a caricature of what a world like that looks like, well, the Argentine stock market actually does really, really well um, in nominal terms. So I would I would think that a shift out of treasuries into real estate, into um, equities, into gold uh, would would uh, would be the logical step in in that world. Okay. Yeah, I was going to ask you your thoughts on real assets, but it just seems like in a in a an environment of elevated inflation and persistent elevated inflation, real assets would seem like a, a natural um, way to to, to go. Um, Joseph, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I I, I highly recommend um, your your work. Your website is fedguy.com and your Twitter feed is terrific. I, I always kind of am eager to see your thoughts on what's going on with the Fed meeting or, you know, whatnot. And that's just at FedGuy12. Is there anywhere else you'd like to, uh, you know, point people to, you know, how can people follow your work? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Like you mentioned, FedGuy.com is where I write about the markets. If you're interested in weekly macro updates, I also have a YouTube channel. It's just called Joseph Wang. So you can find me on YouTube as well. Yeah, that's wonderful. I just actually watched your latest update right before we started recording, and I appreciated you know that the fact that you you do those regular updates on you know kind of timely uh, things that are going on in the markets. So, Joseph, this was great. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Talk to you later. And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and links related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you for listening. And until next time, buy low, sell high. Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss.